0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. A reading from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot... Get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give you anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and for everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit to those who ask in him? The word of the Lord.
1: I had an interesting experience just this last, I think it was Wednesday, I was um, thinking about the Lord's Prayer quite a bit and thinking about just prayer in general, and I was going to pick up my daughter uh, down in Evergreen, and I had a few minutes, and I thought Elk Meadow, if you've been to Elk Meadow right over there, is right by there, I'll get out and just kind of piddle around, it's a beautiful day, so I'll just go wander around on a trail for 10 or 15 minutes and then get back in the car and then go get her from uh, dance where she was, no big deal got out, and I started walking for a little bit, and this tall young man starts walking. Uh, You know, he's hiking the other way, and I'm just kind of walking and thinking about uh, message and just God and all sorts of stuff running around in my brain. That's my think time. And he has these big old headphones, and he pulls them off as we get closer, and he goes, oh, excuse me. He says, uh, has anybody ever told you that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? (laughs) And I have to say, I choked. What I should have done is gone, no, tell me about him, and heard. And then, you know, and then he would have left and been like, yay, God, and, you know, whatever. But it was fun. So I, was, I go, actually, I tell people that all the time. And we sat there, and we chatted. And he was, he was a young man, just graduated from, I forget the school, someplace over east. And he just felt a prompting by the Holy Spirit to drive over to California And um, start in California and then just start driving back across the United States and just get out at different places and just get on trails and just hike and just start coming up to people and just sharing Christ with excuse me, sharing Christ with them. He said, so I started out in California. He goes, I stayed there a little longer than I thought I would. They really need it. And then he kept coming back this way. <clears throat> and I was like, you might be in Colorado a while too, buddy. And um, he was there. So we had, anyway, we had this great little conversation. I felt bad that I was like, I got to go get my daughter, you know. And, um, and so it was just a nice little conversation. And just, I've got to offer him a word of encouragement. And um, he prayed for me and for this for the service. I told him what I was doing. He goes, I'm going to pray right now for you and for your sermon. And I've always had this like, I mean, I know how to pray. I read the Bible. I see examples of it. And this guy, so he'd have been like 21, 22, something like that. Um, It wasn't like, you know, I was here and he was here, like he was better than I am. But there was something just unique about the way he prayed that just sort of struck a chord with me. I mean, we're there at Elk Meadow and he goes, can I just pray? Yeah, you can pray for me. And he just puts his hands up like this and he just starts loud as can be just praying over me. And I'm very open with my faith, but there were even times that I was like, like, are people seeing us? Is this? And I thought, and then honestly, like he just kept going. I thought, who cares if people are seeing us? This is great. This is what we're going to do. And so he's just going to pray and he's just going to do that. And he, he, he kind of, it was all like orthodox. It was all wonderful. He just he just. Said it differently with a different enthusiasm. He used words, you know. You kind of get in this rut, like you use these certain words, and he he just spoke differently. And we got done. He probably prayed for two solid minutes over me, really loud. Felt like he was on a bullhorn the whole time. And then he got done, and he was like, "Have a good day." And I I go, "Yeah, I will," (laughs) because his prayer was so meaningful and so just powerful. I thought, "Oh man, that is great." And I walked off, and I was like, "I kind of think I know how to pray sometimes." And I thought, "Man." this guy just gave me like a master class on how to do it. He just gave me this other picture of a way to pray that opened my eyes. He did something through prayer that just lifted me up. And I wanna do that for you over the next couple of weeks here as we look at the Lord's prayer together. Because this is what happened. You heard it read that they came to Jesus and said, how should we pray? And so he gives them an answer about how to do it. And so Jesus is going to do this, and so we want to learn from him today. And we'll do the same next week as well. Um, One of the things we'll do, we'll be learning a little bit more about how to do it. Excuse me. And wherever you are in your prayer life, I think all of us could say, man, we could use a tune-up. It's good to come back to this and be reminded of what this is that we're doing and why we're doing it. And then one of the things that he's going to get to is, I think, the root of a poor prayer life meaning this is really at the core of the thing that holds us back from really thriving in our prayer life. So we're studying the Lord's Prayer. It starts, um, there's two versions, one in Matthew, one in Luke. Matthew starts and says, Our Father. Luke's gospel just says, just starts and says, Father. These are probably two different times he's saying it. Um, if, if you grew up in a Catholic church, you might have just called this the Our Father because in church traditions, things are often named after the first a couple um, words or the, the paternoster, the, uh, our father, sometimes it's in Latin, you see that as well. And most of the time, the way we pray it is based on Matthew's gospel. Matthew records more of the words of Jesus with regards to the Lord's prayer. And so a lot of times we pray it. So I was talking to Caroline this morning and she goes, she was like, this isn't enough. Like, there's more to, like, why, why is this all there is in Luke's gospel? And well, we normally pray the one from Matthew's gospel, because it's um, slightly different, which leads us to the question, when you pray, do you have to pray the Lord's prayer? Well, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And so we go, oh, well, I guess we should pray like that every single time. Well, the fact that it's in the different gospels slightly differently should lead us to believe, like, well, no, it's not necessarily just these words that we have to pray, Or uh, if it is the only thing we're supposed to pray is exactly those words, then every other time that we pray, we are in sin. That means that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's going, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he is praying. He's not saying the words of the Lord's Prayer. He is praying while he is dying for sin. Does that mean he's committing sin? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. This is, we use these words, but this is also a pattern that we can use to enhance our prayer life as well. It's a lot deeper than that. I don't want to... I don't want to minimize it, but um, then the next question is, well, so why should we do it in the church? And because, you know, you can be a church and never say the Lord's Prayer. Do you know this? You don't have to speak and recite the Lord's Prayer, but we, we happen to do it at Rockland here, and it's not because we took a vote and said, well, it was 60-40 that people like it, so we should. We didn't do that. It's something that is formative, and so why do churches do it? Well, first of all, certainly not sin to do it. If it was, we would stop it um, immediately. But it's one of the things that we can do to unite our voices here and give us a picture of the fact that we are uniting with the global church. I mean, just think about how many hundreds of thousands, maybe, no, I'm saying even millions, actually, of Christians all over the world today are gonna be praying that in unison with us. In fact, if you could like slip into every congregation and video it and then put it all together and hit play at the same time, it would sound incredibly beautiful and also just this garbled mess because it's spoken in all different languages all across the globe. There's something that should really bolster our faith in that to know we are not alone we're part of the universal church, the church worldwide that speaks this and says this with them. And it's not just that. It's that this is from centuries past, that this is something that we've brought forward through our church heritage to repeat this, to say this. And so churches all over the place say it. And so we can go, this isn't, this faith we have isn't something we just invented. It's not new. It's, it's old, it's tradition. It is based on something that has stood the test of time. It reminds us that the truth has not changed. So good news if you've grown up um, saying this differently than we do here at Rockland. So let me just ask. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I apologize. Well, I don't apologize. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you um, grew up in a church where you recited the Lord's Prayer relatively regularly? Would you raise your hand? Whoa. All right. right. I didn't put them down. Now, how many of you either didn't grow up in church or at the church you grew up in didn't recite the Lord's Prayer regularly. I am surprised. I, had, I would have never guessed. That, that's a, if you can't see what I'm seeing, it was 90-10 or so, um, the first way that people have grown up saying the Lord's Prayer in church. All right, okay, next question. Were you debtors or trespassers? That's what I want to know, <laughs> all right? Because I have to say, every time I say the Lord's Prayer and I'm leading it, almost every time I look up and I go, debtors, right? Yeah, debtors, okay, that's what we do. Because I grew up saying, um, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I, okay, how many of you were trespassers growing up? Oh, man. How many of you were debtors growing up? Okay, 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 golly. All right, last one. Oh, man. At the very end of the prayer, sometimes we say deliver us from evil, sometimes we say deliver us from the evil one. So how many of you were delivered from the evil one growing up? Okay, like eight of us, okay. How many of you were said deliver us from evil growing up? Okay, most of the rest of it. Okay, there you go. So the good news is, as you can see, it's spoken slightly differently. And I don't think anybody who spoke it differently was inherently in sin. Nor do I think that if you maybe were at a church and you didn't speak it, that no, you, you must absolutely do it. But you can see the benefits to it and the blessing that it brings to the community of God, which is why we do it. And so remember, we've got Matthew's version of this, where Matthew, it's in the middle of the um, um, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And he says, this is how you should pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites that go out and they go for fanfare in the streets. This is how you should pray. And he gives a longer version of the Lord's Prayer, which is closer to what we say in churches today. And then Luke gives this version that's a little shorter. Look at what it says, 11.1. It says, "'Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, "'Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples.'" Now, this was very characteristic. There was a teacher, and the different teachers, rabbis, would be good at different things, and so you would learn a lot from them, but oftentimes they would notice, um, this is this guy's bent, like maybe it's the um, social-type justice of caring for the poor kind of thing, or maybe it's prayer, or maybe it's an understanding of the Scriptures. And so they would kind of bend a certain way, and when they go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray, they've been watching him, and they see something magnificent. And how Christ prays. That's why they ask him this question. Like, no one will ever come to me and go, Jim, could you teach us to dance? Never. <laughs> could you teach us fashion sense? Nobody's ever gonna come to me and ask these questions. They might ask something else that they've observed and gone, Jim does this well, I'm gonna get some advice from him. They're going to Jesus. So, Jesus is the master prayer and he is gonna explain how to do it. I love how they come to him to do this. I grew up in a house with, um, my mom was a piano teacher. We had an organ and we had a big old grand piano in the house. She taught teenagers piano. I was a teenager, I wanted to learn how to play piano. I do not know how to play piano. Why? The master was sitting right there in my house and I didn't want to ask my mom to teach me to play piano. Now I'm gonna have to ask Susan to teach me to play piano at some point because I actually do wanna learn, but I missed it. This master is right in front of me and I missed it. And they don't. They go to Jesus and they go, teach us to pray. And he said to them, when you pray, say, listen to this, Father. So Luke's gospel just starts out and says, Father. Matthew's gospel says, our Father. Now our Father is kind of implied in what he says because we are crying out to say Father. So he is our Father, our Heavenly Father, so it's kind of implied, but when you see this and you just see Father, we have to be careful as Westerners because we can think, my personal Heavenly Father, and that's it. That's true, but it's way more than that. He is the Father of all His children who call Him Father. Now, um, to say "father," just that word would have jolted these Jewish men that were listening to him. It would have just jolted them for a moment. Because you look in the Old Testament, a very common word for "father," about fourteen hundred times in the Old Testament, and (coughs) excuse me, I find once that somebody says. Um, someday the Messiah will call God father. There's ones that says God is the father to the fatherless. But other than that, we don't find anything that, says, that has um, the Jews calling God their heavenly father. God calls them um, his sons at one point. He refers to the Exodus and, um, and um, the Passover where the firstborn of uh, the Egyptians were slaughtered. He says, uh, Israel was like my, or they were my sons, And therefore, the punishment is upon the sons of the Egyptians. You see that kind of reference? But to call out and say, God is our Father, was brand new. In fact, there was a German theologian whose name I'm not going to botch. He was a New Testament scholar, and he did this study. He looked through the Old Testament writings and all these rabbinic writings from all these Jewish sources. And he looked at Jewish sources and couldn't find anybody addressing God directly as Father in prayer until the 10th century A.D. Think about that. The 10th century A.D. He found examples of God being referred to as the Father, but not as an address to him. Then he started looking and he saw the prayers of Jesus and he made another fascinating discovery. In every prayer of Jesus recorded in the New Testament except for one, Jesus addresses God as Father, So this man says the significance of this is that Jesus, who was a Jew and a rabbi, was making a departure from tradition, and not just a small departure. This is a radical departure from the tradition of the day. How do you pray? Father. It's remarkable what he's doing. And so we have to ask, how can can anybody who's not Jesus, how can any of us cry out to God as Father? And the answer is in Ephesians, it's called the doctrine of adoption. Adoption, meaning if you are in Christ, if you trust Christ, you are adopted into the family of God and of our heavenly Father. Here's what it says. Uh, This is Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are adopted into the family of God if we are in Christ. And we share that with every other Christian on the planet. Let me just say a couple quick words here. When we talk about seeing God as father, there's some who see that and have an instant negative reaction. Some people that had um, maybe rough fathers, to say the least, when they were growing up. And so it can be a real disconnect to say, just pray, like God is your father. To you, I'd say this is your perfect father. In fact, the thing that you lacked from your father is made complete in God, your heavenly father it's really dangerous. When we don't have that father figure in our life, it just becomes this void. And, and you see like, like boys especially grow up to be men. They didn't have a father figure. And so they just got to figure out how to sort of, I just need to you know accentuate like how, how macho I am kind of thing. I don't know if anybody says macho anymore, but like they, they want to be tough. And um, there's really this void of like, I want to I prove myself. And um, I, want peop- I want affirmation from people. And really what it gets back to is there's some void in their life that the Heavenly Father is meant to fill. Church, we have the opportunity to reflect the Heavenly Father to people around us, especially in a day when fathers are largely absent, where families are largely broken. Some of you know my story. When I was growing up, my father left when I was in high school. And um, uh, when I was at church, Danny Kennedy was the guy I'd always go to. Danny knew the Bible. I had a question and he would go, let's see what God says about that. And he'd pull out the Bible and show me. And he loved it. And I remember, even though my dad never did that, I remember with Danny over and over and over. And I just started banking that a little bit. Like, this is the kind of father I wanna be. This is what a father should do. I remember Kyle and Debbie Burroughs. I had six different youth pastors in six years. And I remember they would just get up and resign and I'd be like, okay, well, we just we figured. Like it was coming, like you just got used to it. Kyle and Debbie were there. They were just members of the church. They were volunteers and they were just the consistent people. So much so I remember one guy saying he was leaving and I was like, are y'all gonna be here to them? And they said, yeah, we'll be around. And I went, yeah, great. But they were people that were there and consistent and I got to watch their marriage. I got to watch their faith. I got to watch them with their children and it was transformative for me. Had a couple um, baseball coaches that were Christians. One guy named Chuck. Chuck Mercer was always great. He always he was an old he was an older dad, but he always he was really good at baseball. He schooled us. He had a glove about the size of his hand, just barely bigger. And we're like, oh, Chuck, and we're like, sorry, buddy, to the kid like your dad. Oh, and he just was amazing. At baseball he just scooped up everything and it was so fun but the thing I remember about Chuck is every single time that I wanted to ask him something the rest of the world just left for him and I was the only person in his world I thought that's the kind. Of, that's what a dad should that's what, that's what I want to be like my other coach I told you about as a believer when he knew what was going on with my family he, he would tell me every week he'd say uh, hey I'm in the book I'm in the book you remember phone books he was telling me I'm in the book if you need anything call me call me Call me, and I never did. But the way he always noticed me, remembered me, was um, filling for me. And we have that opportunity to be that for others. <clears throat> and in fact, I want to tell you, there's there's also a danger if you if you go. Well, I actually had a great father figure, so this works really really well for me. I would just encourage you to be a little careful. Praise God for that figure in your life, but at the same time. If you start to say, my dad and God are very, very similar, you can see the danger in that. If, I was the, if, if the government calls me and says, Jim, we have gotten word that you are the greatest father the world has ever known, and we want to start a Father Hall of Fame, and we've been waiting for the perfect father to do that, the best father ever, and you're the guy, we're gonna call it the, the, the uh, Jim Gribnitz, Dad Hall of Fame, Father Hall of Fame, and it's gonna be named after you, and... When you walk in, it's gonna have the, the whole, a whole you know, room just dedicated to you, and um, there's gonna be a statue outside of you going like, no, no, I'm so humble, don't do that, you know, whatever. Like a statue outside, there's, it's named after you, and it's the greatest dads ever, and you're the pinnacle of it. And my kids were to come to me and go, wow, my heavenly father is just like my dad, who's the greatest in the world. I would have to say, it is not even close. God far supersedes any human being that we can possibly imagine. It's very important to understand. When we pray, don't forget who we're praying to, which is Father. And then the next thing he says, watch these kind of intention here. um, Hallowed be your name. Boy, that hallowed just won't go away, will it? You know what hallowed is? It's the Greek word, it's agios. And every place else, it's translated um, holy or sanctified. And it shows up 28 times in the New Testament, just like that. But then the root of it just shows up a ton of time in a ton of different words. And it's never translated hallowed, except for two places. Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer and Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Why in the world is that? Well, probably one is because if I'd start, instead of saying hallowed, I started saying holy, all you hand raisers from a little while ago would be mad at me. Like that's what the church has always said. And so there's something that sort of echoes down through the ages and across geography here um, when we use this term. In fact, one author said it like this. He says, "Um, there's a sense of mystery and an alien quality that I associate with hallowed because I never use the word otherwise. There's something unique about it. But it simply means, Holy is your name. So here's the question. When it says, Hallowed be your name, is this part of the address or is this part of the petition? Is this the first petition? Is this the first request? I've always seen this as part of the address. I'll use Matthew's example Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the address. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or is he simply saying, Father, and then his first request is, may your name be holy. And I'm going to tell you, it's the second way. And I've always seen it as the first way. There's actually elements of both. But what he's actually doing is making a request that's hard to see in the English. He's addressing God and saying, Father, and then the New Living Translation actually translates it like this. It says, may your name be kept holy, that it is a request of God. Father, may your name be kept holy. And name is a really big deal. Like if after the service someone comes up and I go, hi, my name's Jim and I'm meeting somebody, you're introducing them and, they, and you go, I don't really like the name Jim. Uh, I'm gonna call you Barry. Hey, uh, this is Barry. Everybody come meet Pastor Barry. This is Barry and I'm going, my name's Jim. If you walked by and you heard somebody introducing me as Pastor Barry, you, you would go, what, what are you doing? You can't just change this guy's name because it's almost like there's something at the core of who he is that you're changing. It's like you meet someone and you see Timothy and you go, do you go by Tim or Timothy? And they go, oh, whichever one you want to do is fine. I'm like, no, like, I, don't, like, I don't want to call you Timothy. And then I'm around your friends and they're like, Timothy, why is he calling him Timothy? Like, Tell me what your name is. Like this really gets to the root and the essence of who you are. And so the prayer here that he's giving is God, may your name be kept holy. May who you are be kept holy. What he's really saying, I'll show you, is um, may others know your goodness and your holiness. May your name be kept holy in the world in which we find ourselves today. The fact that God is holy means he is different from anything that we can find or experience in the material universe that we find ourselves in. That God the creator differs from all his creatures in the creation. That he is high and transcendent. That he and he alone is worthy of worship. Nobody on earth. The idea of being holy and being set apart comes from, um, (coughs) excuse me, in Genesis on the seventh day of creation, God rested and he set the day aside as holy. Ten commandments, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. If you remember, Isaiah in the Old Testament gets this vision of the heavenly throne room before he gets commissioned in Isaiah chapter six and it says he sees the angels and they're calling back and forth before the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is different and distinct from you or me in every way. In Revelation, John gets this glimpse of heaven. In Revelation 4, it says, four living creatures, each with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So then the next question is, he is holy, So why would we pray, may your name be holy? Because it already is. Another translation says it like this. Excuse me. May your name be treated as holy. In other words, I'm not trying to make you holy because you already are. I just want others to see you as holy. I want, starting with me, to see you as holy and distinct and other. That's what he's saying here. There's a great illustration from a guy named Cyril of Alexandria. He was a bishop in the fourth and fifth centuries. And um, uh, there's a lot of archaic language. I'll try to, I'll change a little bit of it. But he's, he's talking about hallowed be thy name. May your name be made holy doesn't mean, God, I wish you were holier. He's saying, I wish we would see you in the fullness of your holiness is essentially what he's saying. So he gives an example of somebody who is outside and wants to see the sun, but can't see very well at all. Only a little bit of the, uh, the sun's light can come in. And so when the man prays to see the sun, is he praying that the sun would be made brighter? No. He's praying that he might see the sun in the fullness of its radiance. And when we say, hallowed be thy name, we're not saying, gee, I wish you were holier." we're saying, let us see you in the fullness of your holiness. Amen. May your name be restored that people around would understand who you are. The world desperately needs to see this, doesn't it? Something that is true up there, we wish it was true here. This fits with the rest of the the passage, by the way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If, If God's not holy, then who really cares if his kingdom's here or not? In fact, why don't we just ignore that, kinda take some notes from it, and then build our own kingdom here? Maybe we can even do it better. If he's not holy and distinct and different, maybe we can do it better. You see why this matters in the world today? That if we all of a sudden say, we are pretty darn close to God, so we can do it just as good or maybe even better. Thy will be done. Why do we want the will of God to be done? Why not the will of Jim to be want done? Why not the will of you? Because it is God's will that is perfect and holy. So none of the rest of this makes sense if we don't understand the holiness of God. Do we need this in our world today. Breaking a commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord <coughs> excuse me, will not hold guiltless who takes his name in vain. I'll tell you one of the things that's bothered me a lot lately. Have you noticed on TV, in the movies, and it's bled over into life, saying Jesus Christ has become a substitute for profanity in our culture? Pardon me, but people will go, Jesus Christ, and not even think about it. Try that and go around a large Jewish population and start trying to get Adonai or Yahweh as a swear word. Go to Iran and try to say Allah. Use it as a profane word, Muhammad. Go try that and see how it goes. But for some reason, we can say Jesus Christ like that and use it where you would just substitute profanity for it, and it's accepted in the culture. I'm coaching a baseball team, and that's one of the kid's default things that he uses. It's just, it's seeped into the culture, and so what happens is when we take that and we say, it's just a name. It's really seeing the essence of how we understand God, how we understand ourselves before God. R.C. Sproul tells a story. He says, before my conversion, I thought nothing of using the name of God or the name of Jesus in a blasphemous manner as a mode of cursing. But after my conversion, I noticed an almost immediate change in my speech patterns. I couldn't find it within myself to blaspheme the names of God and Jesus anymore. Why not? And he says, because I was in love. I had a profound affection for Christ and a profound sense of gratitude for God. And suddenly things that had just rolled off my lips so easily prior to my conversion just simply would no longer come forth from my mouth. Amen. He's giving us the first priority in our requests. Your Father and God, I desire that your name be seen in the fullness of its holiness in my life and the lives of those around me. It is right to get upset when people say God or Jesus Christ as a, prof- as a substitute for profanity. It's right to grieve that, that that's how far we've come in our culture. I mean, some of you know, can you imagine seeing that on TV like 40 years ago? Seeing it in the movies that long ago? I've been watching now, and I got to tell you, it, it almost seems like the default thing that has slipped into our culture. He's giving this um, first priority. And so one of the ways I think we could apply this is to really think deeply about what's going on and go, that is a root issue in our culture that the name of God, the name of Jesus has been defamed in our culture. And if he is somebody, not even he's just like us, but like we can use him as a swear word essentially. So it's like just kind of give or take and he's like down here somewhere. We're never gonna see him in the, in the fullness of his holiness. And that changes everything. We don't want his kingdom to come here. Who cares? Why would I obey what he says? I'm a pretty good guy too. Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Why? 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 I can do it. I can do it pretty good. We're pretty smart people. We could figure it out on our own. This is what it goes back to. The personhood of God has been defamed in our culture. So when we pray, we can pray for that. God, may your name be restored in our time. We'll get into more of this next week. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we... F- <coughs> For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This goes back to the question from the beginning. How does this change our prayer life? Remember that the one in heaven is holy. That's being acknowledged by everyone around the throne has been from eternity past. Remembering what is true about God and also remembering that he is Father. Father. And he wants to hear, listen to this, the next part, we'll go into this next week. He said, which of you who as friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door's now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. Listen to this. What father among you, if his son, son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? What a ridiculous analogy. There's a, there's a fish in the bag for you, buddy. Why don't you put your hand in here and grab it? Pay no attention to the rattling coming from the bag. Just go ahead and put your hand in there. He's saying, Of course not. A father wouldn't do that. And he's saying, Nor will your heavenly father. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? That's an interesting image, too, isn't it? What are you want for breakfast? Here. And he's, I'm not making you eggs. Here's some scorpions. Of course not. I mean, you get, you get he's trying to say this is ludicrous that, that a, a father on earth wouldn't do that. So the heavenly father knows to do even better. It says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here's what he's saying. God is holy and distinct and other from us, but the prayer starts with Father. In fact, you remember how the whole conversation started? Hey Jesus, would you tell us how to pray? Oh, get out of here, disciples. You've seen me do this a hundred times. You should know how to do it. No. No. I just picture him going, I'd love to. I'd love to teach you how to pray. And he answers it for me. And then he sums it up by going, when you ask God, he longs to give blessings to his children. And the root of a poor prayer life is generally this, that even though we don't want to admit it in church, even though we don't want to admit it to our Christian friends especially, sometimes we wonder when we pick up the phone to call God, so to speak, we wonder if there's really Somebody on the other end. When, um, during COVID, we were in this room and I had people take pictures and we put them out on the seats. There you go, there's some of us probably the first week. We put them out in the seats. Some people took pictures of the screen with me on it, which was an interesting, so I was like, I don't want those. We got pictures of you all like tuning in online when we were shut down. And it gave me a little sense of, okay, people are, People are listening when we're out there. It is the strangest feeling to sit in here and prep a sermon and then give a sermon and prepping the music and doing the music and then, and then looking at the camera and being like, I hope somebody's paying attention to it. I hope there's somebody on the other end of it. And the first day people were actually back, it was night and day different. Or be on a Zoom call. Here's one you can do. Be on a Zoom call and like where you have to talk for a little bit and you can do it two ways. Put everybody's face up there and then go to the setting where you can just put your face while you're talking. And as you're talking, and as you're talking, you'll just start to feel like apprehensive like, are people sleeping? Are they paying attention? I, they, I know they're there, but are they there? Or am I just kind of talking to my computer screen? God is there. When you wonder if God has heard your prayers, He has. He longs to be asked, He longs to be sought. He loves to have his door knocked upon and so ask seek and knock. You are talking to the God of the universe. It's not one that who is aloof or absent or indifferent. You don't have to wonder if somebody is on the other side. You are talking to the one who is holy, the one who gives gifts perfectly, and he tells you to call him father. It's remarkable. And so, Father, now we put into practice now what churches have done for centuries and churches are doing all over the globe, even today. God, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts